to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 to 40, is our target text. If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn there. And uh, would like to uh, just set the tone as I usually do. I think we have all shared, uh, we all share admiration for those pioneers of, uh, of their respected fields. Um, it makes no difference, I think, what field it is. Men and women who, are, who were pioneers uh, warrant a certain amount of our respect and awe for their courage and fortitude and exploits and endeavors. Uh, they inspire us in our own interests, in fact. They also drive those who follow them in their particular fields to do better. Exploration, for example, didn't end with the pioneering work of Lewis and Clark or Boone and Crockett. Uh, it drove exploration to new heights with others achieving greater goals, if you can imagine. These hardy individuals of the early 19th century never figured, for example, on sea exploration and Jacques Cousteau or space exploration of NASA. Now, we needn't take time to make the same point in other fields such as science and medicine and art and engineering. It's true that, that though they were pioneers and they started the ball rolling, there were others that came along since then and not only kept the ball rolling, but rolled it even better and faster and uphill. This is not to take away the remarkable work, of course, of the pioneers of yesteryear, only to lay emphasis on the fact that those who come after them stand on their shoulders and they have a greater advantage to do well. They are more informed, better equipped technologically, have more resources at their disposal. More than this, pioneers not only welcome and inspire others who are more equipped to do better in their fields, but they throw down the gauntlet too to do more pioneering work and to borrow from Gene Roddenberry, go where no man has gone before. I used I use this explanation as a way to illustrate how the Lord has designed the walk of faith by his elect in their pilgrimage to the kingdom of heaven to increase in its effectiveness from the first couple to the inauguration of the new covenant. Just as God's revelation was progressive, culminating with apostolic truth of the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews speaks of a similar progression in the hazardous life of living by faith and the promises of God's future blessing. There is a progression. Specifically, he speaks of the old covenant as becoming obsolete and replaced with a better covenant at uh, at one point, he describes those things that the Old Testament saints practiced as mere shadows of the substance of Christ around which the new covenant now centers. He's told us that those believers who now live on, on the other side of the cross, that's us, have consciences made perfect, having received better promises, as well as the fulfillment of many of the old covenant promises in Christ. Now, these idea, this idea of a better position in the walk of faith 
is one of the strongest arguments that the writer uses to urge us to live by faith as God expects us to, superlatively. That is, in the best way possible, the better way possible. We see it worked out in our text this morning. I want to read it for you, just two verses. This is the culmination of the entire chapter. And this is what it says. All these, having gained approval through their, through faith, their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Now what is that all about? <laughs> Even though we've spent months in chapter 11, we still look at these two verses and think, hmm, there's something here I'm not quite getting. Well, here's the expositional idea. I'm going to give it up front. I also published it for you in the bulletin. We say here that New Covenant believers must live by faith in God's promises of future blessing if they will enjoy God's approval, their future inheritance now, solidarity with God's invisible church, and a superlative status as faith's best champions. Maybe that's even more cryptic than the two verses themselves. wasn't meant to be, but we'll flesh this out. So as you could tell, there are four important truths that the writer wants us to rehearse again. He wants to rehearse them with us, truths that he firmly established already in the chapter. And you may have picked them out in my expositional uh, uh, my, uh, my expositional um, idea. And if you have, good for you. Um, let's turn our attention to the first one. The first one goes like this. New Covenant believers must live by faith in, God, in God's promise of future blessing if they will enjoy God's approval. If they will enjoy God's approval. What matters most in our Christian walk of faith is that we have God's pleasure and approval. That is really what the first half of verse 39 is all about. This truth is as simple as it is important, and it's really simple to understand. So it's important. It's important. And its importance is demonstrated by the fact that the writer frames the chapter with it. Speaking of faith, the writer says in verse 2, for by, for by it the people of old gained approval. That is by faith. And then he repeats it again in verse 39. And all these having gained approval through their faith. You see, he, he brackets the entire chapter with this very truth. What should matter most to all of us as believers is that we have God's approval. Now, that's not a complicated concept, but it does seem to escape us more often than not. So let me break it down for you um, one more time. As we leave this chapter, we understand it to apply to two aspects in the Christian life. When we talk about God's approval, we talk about it on two aspects of the Christian life. One aspect is our conversion. Specifically, we were justified by faith. When God regenerates a depraved heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, that individual exercises faith and repentance to show that he is genuine and at that very moment is justified by God. To be justified before God means that we now have 
a justifiable reason to stand before him without fear of judicial judgment and condemnation and with every confidence that he accepts us in Christ. It's my definition. Justification. Now, if that's true of you, if you've been justified by faith in Christ alone before God, then you have been approved of God. God approved you the moment he saved you, justified you. Now, the other aspect has to do with demonstrating our approval before God by living obedient lives. The Old Covenant champions showed the genuineness of their profession when they lived by faith and prevailed in the face of their most severe testing and oppositions. If you've been approved by God, justified by faith, then your life will show that very truth. You will bear fruit that is in keeping with your confession. Your desire to make Christ known to the nations, to do his will, to be like him, that's, that's all very paramount in your life now. Genuine Christians never lose this, ever. They, make, they never make an about face on the narrow way to travel the broad road to destruction. Never. If that happens, and many have, even in our day, sadly, they were never approved of God to begin with. They were never justified. I mentioned a moment ago in our praise, our public praise in the assembly, that I had an ever-so-brief visit this past week with a good friend of mine who is also a pastor in another state. We enjoyed breakfast together and some much-needed fellowship. It's been a while. Um, in our conversation, we touched upon the reality of so many of God's champions who have gone on to be with Christ in our lifetime and how much we miss their leadership and teaching and their courage. Jim Boyce, R.C. Sproul, F.F. Bruce, John Gerstner, Jay Adams, just, just to name a few. And that made us appreciate all the more those few who are still with us and are such a blessing to us in these last days. Men like John MacArthur and Sinclair Ferguson, Eric, Eric, Eric Alexander, Edward Donnelly, Al Martin. How long will we have them? Well, Many of them, retired now, are in their 80s. My co-laborer shared a sobering thought with me at that very moment. We are now the next generation to carry the light of the truth. We're it. And this is somewhat unsettling because we depend on those, those leaders, those stalwarts of the faith, the godly of the faith. And, it, and, and, and it's unsettling all the more by the realization that we have to do this when the churches in America are in a season of apostasy and compromise. I'll spare you the catalog of famous Christian personalities that have either denounced the faith or have jumped on the bandwagon of wokeness and critical race theory. We've mentioned them before. It's also sad my friend and I were reminded of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24. He says there that they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another. 
Many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will become cold. But the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. And that brings us right back to center into this text. Those of us who have been genuinely saved, who have genuine saving faith, and who live by that faith and the promises of God's future blessing, the better country will endure to the end of our lives. And by that time, we will have shown that we have been and always were approved of God. People who have been justified and live a life that meets with God's approval are those who walk with their eyes fixed on the kingdom of heaven. God's approved not only desire to be with God in the better country, but are motivated by that promise to live the faith all the more aggressively. And they can endure whatever God has deemed necessary for them to endure until he takes them home to be with him. Now, this is exactly what the first century Jewish Christian audience needed to hear. They started to show signs of wavering, drifting, which obviously concerned the writer greatly. They were entertaining tenets of Judaism again that they had long ago abandoned. Judaism sort of reformed by a Jewish sect called the Essenes. The reason they went back to their old religion, started attending temple services again and incorporating Judaism with Christianity as if the two were compatible, was was undoubtedly to avoid the persecution that they had come to experience because of their association with Christ. Persecution can take its toll even on Christians if they don't know how to live by faith in in what's important, what's all important, Messiah's kingdom, his inheritance. But this isn't what it means to live by faith. It's it's not what people who have been justified by faith do. It's not the actions of those who are approved of God in all of their actions. It's somewhat ironic that the writer challenges this first century audience to imitate the faith of the very Old Testament heroes their heroes, who would not have even agreed with the retreat of this first century audience back to Judaism. (laughs) They may have lived during the Old Covenant, but they were looking to the fulfillment of Messiah, these heroes of the faith. Christ would inaugurate the New Covenant. That was what they had their eyes set on. In actual fact, God's promise of future blessing that they were anticipating would come by the new covenant. So the writer gives these Jewish Christians the benefit of the doubt. He calls them to live by faith and warns anyone who might be among them with an unbelieving heart to repent before it's too late. But he does, he does instruct them as best he can. Why Jesus and the new covenant are superior to Moses in the old covenant and urges them to live to live their faith once again aggressively, not looking back to the shadows, but forward to the substance that is Christ and his reward of future blessing, the the inheritance, the better country waiting for them, for all believers. When we live by faith, we give proof that we are genuinely saved, that we are approved 
of God. Here's my last word on God's approval. As we've argued throughout this entire chapter, there is no better feeling in the world than to know that you have God's pleasure and approval. No better feeling than that. It's the essence of true contentment. The whole world could be against you. You have God on your side, that's all that matters. If God has approved you in your conversion, then you will desire to seek his approval in your Christian walk, no matter where it leads, and prove genuineness, the genuineness of your confession. The way to be on the right track is to ask yourself this very simple question in any situation that you're in at any time. What must I do to please Christ? What must I do to please Christ? That should be your starting point. From there, you go to the Word in order to find out. And once you do, you don't hesitate to do it. The approval of God, the thing that matters most in the Christian life. Number two, New Covenant believers must live by faith in God's promises of future blessing if they will enjoy their future inheritance now. That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, second part of verse 39 and all of verse 40 says, they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Well, what is remarkable about these Old Testament champions is that they live by faith in the promises of God's future blessing that they never saw fulfilled in their lives. They saw some promises fulfilled in their lives, but these specific ones I'm referring to, they never saw. And while that has a certain tone of sadness to it, never seeing the fulfillment that they yearned for so passionately and endured great hardship for, there is also a greater tone of victory and joy and confidence and comfort that overshadows any sadness. Why do I say that? Because God's people don't need to have such promises literally fulfilled in their lifetime in order to enjoy them or to have a sterling walk of faith. That's why. It was enough for these champions that God made these promises to them. That was enough. They had no doubt that God's promises would come true, whether in their lifetime or after they went home to be with their great God, didn't matter to them. But what you mustn't miss here is that they were so confident that they would eventually receive what was promised them, even if it weren't until glory, that to them, these promises were as good as fulfilled. You mustn't miss this. Now, I'm sure that all of us here know what it's like to live in light of something guaranteed that is not in your possession yet. My nephew has been a phenomenal baseball player since he was a little boy. He's 18 now. He's played for BC High School for, for the last four years, and he's earned quite a reputation for himself. He is ranked among the top 500 in America as an overall player, ranked number one in the state, number one for defense. He's an outfielder, center field, in fact. And he holds the record for the most stolen bases in the school. It is a foregone conclusion that Nico, that's his name, 
will steal, on average, six bases a game, including home plate. The University of Connecticut, which is hailed as the top university for baseball, had him in their sights when he was just a freshman in high school. And as soon as they were legally able, they gave him a scholarship to play for their team, the Huskies. UConn made him a promise in writing that they, that, uh, that, they will, um, that they will accept him in 2022. And not only that, but that he will start on varsity as the center fielder, as a freshman. That's the guarantee. Now, why do I bring this up? I'm not just, not just a proud uncle. There are two ways that this guarantee affects him. And, of course, there's a, an illustration in here for us, so I'll, I'll bring in just a few moments. One aspect is that it comes with a, a great amount of responsibility. My nephew has to maintain a high GPA average throughout the rest of his school career, keep his nose clean, and continue to be a phenomenal baseball player. That's the condition. The way this affects him is that he can enjoy, to a large degree, what has been promised him now. That's the other aspect. He can relax about his college future. He's already been accepted. And for a high school student to know his direction and career is huge. He also represents UConn now, even though he's still in high school. He, he promotes the school by his phenomenal record. And believe me, they promote him on social media all over the place. They post his batting averages and video and his videos of basing, base running and, and performances in the outfield. Most importantly, he is, for all practical purposes, a Husky. He wears the shirt. He talks up the university, boasts of his team. He's in regular communication with the varsity coach who encourages him and treats him as if he were one of his own players. He works out. He keeps a rigorous, healthy diet to protect his future career there. He visits the team and practices with the team from time to time. He's one of them now, enjoys that reputation right now, and the way he conducts himself now will have a great bearing on how he is received then. I think the Christian life is much the same way. God has guaranteed us a great inheritance in heaven, which includes, but not limited to, reigning with Christ, worshiping God perfectly, loving others in the body perfectly, rejoicing with a joy inexpressible. And with that promise comes great responsibility, which Jesus speaks of in the Gospels, whoever has been given much, much is required. We are responsible to proclaim this kingdom, to boast of God's greatness, to represent him as ambassadors for Christ and persevere and, and, uh, and, and stay the course and be found standing in the end. And with this guarantee also comes the enjoyment of it now. How do I enjoy this now without its literal fulfillment? Well, we invest in it now. We live by kingdom principles now. We pursue perfect holiness now. 
because that's how we will be then. We strive to love now the way we will then and conduct our local body now the way that the universal body will then. You get the idea? If you're counting on an inheritance in heaven, one that, that is resistant to rust and moth and robber, do you live it as if it were yours now? Do you live as if you are rich? How do I live as if I'm rich? I'm on mass health. Well, by having no obsessive attachments to this material world, because what your inheritance is is abundant. Back in chapter 10, verse 35, the author actually uses this very argument to call his audience to confident living. He says, Do you remember when you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession? How do you live now, knowing that you have eternal life? By not, by not being moved to despair by anything temporal on this earth. How do you live now knowing that you will be perfect in heaven by striving for perfection in your spiritual life now and practicing all the principles that God has given you in his word for striving? How do you, how do you live now knowing that you will reign with Christ by, being, by, by living a victorious spiritual life now? By championing righteousness, by standing for God's truth, exposing error, putting to death the lust of the flesh by ruling and subduing well that part of the earth that we are, are responsible for, our homes, our families, yes, even our bodies. When Paul rebuked the Corinthians for suing each other in the first century, in, uh, in his letter to them, 1 Corinthians, he used the argument that Christians will be judging the world and angels someday with Christ. So, that's the case, and they surely could judge earthly temporal disputes between themselves now. Knowing what's coming in heaven, what we'll receive and enjoy there should affect the way we live here, how we respond to life here. Pursue it now, the writer says. Live now as if, if you were already there, no matter how difficult that may be in a fallen world. I might use another illustration to drive this truth home a truth most people are familiar with, even in secular life. It used to be, used to be, that when two people got engaged to be married, they reserved several months, even a year, to plan their wedding and new life together. They looked for a place to call their own and maybe put down a, put down, a down payment on it. One of them might have even moved in and lived there if the timing wasn't just right in order to hold it and maintain it until they both could live there together as husband and wife. They scoped out the area where they would live, spent time there getting familiar with the new environment that, that they will be living in. They might secure memberships to a gym and a library, a shopping center, banks in advance to make the transition to their new lives together easier. The focus of each is no longer on themselves as individuals, but as a couple, even though they're not married yet. They carry on in anticipation of that time when they will be married and what life will look like from that point on. And the thrill of anticipating this new life is so wonderful that they get caught up in it 
and begin to enjoy that kind of life to some degree, even before they have it. Are you enjoying your approved status before God now? It'll show in your lifestyle. Are you enjoying the fact that you're perfect in Christ positionally? It will show in the way that you strive to be holy before God in this world. Are you enjoying the fact that you're reigning with Christ, that you'll reign with Christ someday? It will show in the way that you take responsibility for your life and, and your calling now. Are you enjoying being a co-heir with Christ? It'll show in the way that you use what God has entrusted to your care for the benefit of his church rather than hoarding it all to yourself and being stingy. Peter explains experiencing now what we know we will have in full later as obtaining the outcome of our faith. I love this phrase. It's in 1 Peter 1, just in verses 8 and 9. He says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You love now a person you cannot and won't see until heaven. But you believe in him and you love him. And by having an intimate relationship with them now causes you great rejoicing, which is what you will do when you see him face to face and obtain the outcome of your faith. I appreciate the words of Tony Merida in his expositional commentary in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 14, which is the same topic as ours. He says this, quote, Make no provision for the flesh. Instead, direct your mind to the promises of God in Scripture. Direct your mind to the beauty of Christ. Follow the style, the lifestyle of the Savior in this present age. Direct your mind to the glory that is to come. We have a wonderful Savior who satisfies our human longings and empowers us for this kind of obedience. Jesus is better than sin, the sin of retaliation, the sin of dishonoring the government, the sin of falling or failing, rather, to love our neighbors, the sin of the flesh. One day, soon, he will come and eradicate the world of sin once and for all, and we will no longer wrestle in these bodies of flesh. Live this day in view of that day. End quote. Mm -hmm. uh, beloved, I want to clarify that we, of course, have been and continue to speak of God's promises of future blessing, that is the end time blessing, right? Messiah's return, our inheritance into heaven, our, our um, uh, uh, being and reigning with Christ, and all things that have to do with our existence in the eternal state. We don't deny that God makes temporal promises that are necessary for our Christian walk. Of course not. He, he does promise to be with us, never to forsake us, answer our prayers, give us wisdom, and so on. That we're not denying. We're talking about these end-time future blessings. So what do we turn our attention to now? Number three, the New Covenant believer must live by faith in God's promises of future blessing if he or she will enjoy solidarity with God's invisible church. What is this all about? This is also verses 
30 and 40, but the end part of that, that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Speaking of the Old Testament saints. That's an odd thing to say. What's the writer getting at here? What does it mean when he says that apart from us, these old covenant champions would not be made perfect? Well, to answer this, let's work backwards. Perfection for the believer is instantaneous with conversion. God imputes or puts the righteousness of Christ onto our account and accepts us on the basis of Christ's work alone. We are perfect in Christ. But of course, that is positionally. That is, as God sees us from his vantage point. Experientially speaking, we are not perfect and we will never be perfect this side of heaven. And that's because perfection means full redemption. That is, God redeems not only our spirits or souls, same thing in my view, but he also redeems our bodies. While every genuine believer who closes his eyes in death here immediately opens them in heaven, he is there in spirit only. His body is the last of, his, of the part of his person to be redeemed, and, and, he will, and it will be redeemed only on the last day when God raises them up out of their graves in a transformed state and unites us with them. So perfection for the Old Testament saints couldn't come unless a series of events took place first, one being the coming of Messiah and the completion of his redemptive work. That would be the first coming. That was the beginning also of the new covenant life for believers going forward. It was necessary that Messiah do this first before there could be any hope of anyone being with him in heaven someday in bodily form. That, worked, that work happened later with respect to the Old Testament saints. And, and it is necessary to include more people now, namely Gentiles, a new covenant era was the next step in the process to bring many sons to glory before the end when we all together will receive full redemption at the same time the raising of our physical bodies. So what is the practical import of this truth for us? Well, it fits well with the whole theme of longing for God's promise of future blessing and how it affects us now. The Apostle Paul makes this point clearly in 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, first four verses, Paul says, For we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made by hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, since in fact, after putting it on, we will not be found naked." For indeed, we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gives us the Spirit as a pledge. Paul uses a building metaphor for our glorified bodies, that we will receive at the resurrection and since flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, they must be changed. Again, verse 2, Paul longed for this eternal body that 
will perfectly express his transformed nature. He longed for it. He says, we groan for it, longing to put it on. And because he knew what was coming, he desired to be free from his eternal body and all relentless sins and frustrations and weaknesses that are so indicative of it. How did this promise affect him? Notice he says, moving on in verse 6, that even though we are clothed in flesh and are absent from the Lord's literal presence, we can be of good courage. Why is that? Because we live by faith in the promise of a glorified body. That's why. In other words, we know what's coming that we will be outfitted to please the Lord perfectly in heaven someday, and that's enough to please the Lord even now. Listen to verse 9. Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to please him, that is Christ. Paul would not be hindered by his earthly body to please the Lord now in the way that he knew he will in, or would in heaven someday, and when that does happen, we will all be together, every believer who has ever lived, all in one body, the invisible body of Christ, now becoming visible, the militant church, now the triumphant church in, in eternity. As the writer says in verse 40, old and new together. How does that truth affect us now? It helps us to understand that there is a solidarity, a unity in the body of Christ, an organic one. One that we can look forward to and one we can anticipate by cultivating that unity here among us. Do you sing the hymns in the local assembly knowing that you will do this with the saints in heaven someday? Indeed, that you do it even now with the throng that is there right now singing praise to God? Does that ever occur to you? We join our voices with theirs even now. Do you anticipate the Lord's return and yearn for it? Well, so do the saints in heaven. They learn for the Lord's return as well. Listen to Revelation 6. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God. And because of the testimony which they had maintained, they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? You, you we, and they both together long for the same thing. At the same time. Has the thought ever occurred to you that they that that, that they are li- there are living saints in heaven right now with whom we share the same passions for Christ and for his kingdom and his will to be done? We do. We do, and the fact that they are doing it perfectly someday, they are doing actually they are doing perfectly some of what we do imperfectly to motivate us to be about it all the more aggressively now. In other words, what we do now, some of what we do now, they're doing already, and they're doing perfectly, and we will join them, 
and do it perfectly. And that should motivate us now to strive all the more to do it as perfectly as we can. Let me hasten to the last part of this wonderful little passage, very pregnant as you can see. New Covenant believers must live by faith in God's promises of future blessing if they will enjoy a superlative status as faith's best champions. When the New Testament writers craft their arguments in their letters, they often use a variety of literary devices. One of the more popular ones is the argument from lesser to greater. If you're looking for the technical term for this device, it is a fortiori. Don't try that at home. Yes, the writer to the Hebrews uses it in this small bit of text before us now. How does it work? It's an argument where the writer reaches a conclusion by first setting up two possibilities, one of which is more probable than the other. So whatever can be affirmed about the less probable can be affirmed with even greater force about the more probable, lesser to greater. You get it? We, I think we can all remember the commercial for Life Cereal, uh, the one where the brothers experiment on picky little Mikey. Do you remember that one? If Mikey likes it, the boys figured anyone would. And that's an argument from lesser to greater. It's something less likely is true than something more likely will probably be true as well. So let me show it to you in the text. It says, they, that is the Old Testament or Old Covenant champions of faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. That is the New Covenant believers. Now, did you catch the comparison uh, that the writer makes here? Maybe you didn't catch it the first time around. Maybe you caught it now. God provided something better. Well, to whom did he provide this, and better than what? The implication of the text is that God provided a measure of his grace to those champions uh, of faith in the Old Covenant by giving them his covenant promises of future blessing, namely Messiah, Messiah's redemptive work, Messiah's coming kingdom. That measure of grace was enough for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Elisha, Daniel, and others to muster an aggressive loyalty and devotion to the Lord that clearly demonstrated their obedience to the word, even in times of hardship and suffering. Now, if they could pull that off with this small measure of grace that God gave them with just a promise of future blessing. How much more can we New Covenant members who have received a greater measure of God's grace in the fulfillment of that promise muster loyalty and devotion to the Lord by obeying Him in our lives even in times of hardship and suffering? Oh, much more. Much more. What the champions of faith of old could only long for has been fulfilled for the new covenant champions. And I speak specifically of the first coming of Christ and his redemptive work, of course. We still wait for Jesus' return. We still wait for the promise of his kingdom and the promise of the eternal state and the promise of, of, uh, of reigning with Christ. Yes, of course. 
But in, in living in light of that, just as our fellow champions did in the, in the Old Testament, is what, uh, is what keeps us aggressively uh, living by faith. There can be no question, beloved, that we are in a much better situation than they were. We are members of the better covenant, which means that we are in a better position to champion righteousness. Better than Abraham, than David, than, than the psalmists? Yes, much better than they. And here's where the author's argument shines the brightest. If those champions before Messiah could champion righteousness, could overcome their terrible situation, could endure others without being moved, we have no excuse not to do even better because our faith is more informed. That's the responsibility part. More, we can do much better and there is no excuse for us not to. How much better can we soldier on in the fight that they once fought? Stand our ground and not shrink back. Press on and stay the course. So much better. John Owen has a way, as you can imagine, as all the Puritans did, of putting truth. And in this particular truth, he says this, quote, If they, on whom the light of grace had not as yet so brightly shown, displayed so great a constancy in enduring evils. What ought the full brightness of the gospel to produce in us? A small spark of light led them to heaven when the sun of righteousness shines over us. With what pretense can we excuse ourselves if we still cleave to the earth? End quote. What, what conviction comes with, with such expressive words? Let me go on. He expressed the practical side of this much, much more forcefully. He says, quote, And it is a singular evidence of God's benevolence toward us that though he has shown himself bountifully to his children from the beginning of the world, he yet has so distributed his grace as to provide for the well-being of the whole body what more could any of us desire than, in, desire than that in all the blessings which God bestowed on Abraham, Moses, David, and all the patriarchs, on the prophets and godly kings, he should have a regard for us so that we might be united together with them in the body of Christ. Let us then know that we are doubly and treble ungrateful to God if less faith appears in us under the kingdom of Christ than the fathers had under the law, as proved by so many remarkable examples of patience. End quote. As full as that is, and as difficult as the uh, 17th century language was, I think you grasp what Owen is saying. We new covenant believers must live by faith in God's promises of future blessing. If we are going to enjoy God's approval, our future inheritance now, solidarity with God's invisible church, and a superlative status as faith's best champions, we can, we should, we must 
It is the best way to make our great God known to this world while we pursue the other.